new season, new time. And I wanted to welcome everyone in. Come on in. And I've been pushing this thing for a while. And we're on three years on True House Stories. I'm blessed to come on every, almost every Wednesday. I can't say every Wednesday. And we're just coming off a hot summer. And we're back into some super duper quadruple wobble heat right now. It's like, first we have coolness. And now we're back to, for the ones over in Europe, 33 degrees or 94, 96 degrees in September. And we're starting a new fall season in a full hot box. And with that, because it's super hot in the game, I'm so glad to welcome back this man. Um, I'm going to, you know, introduce in a second. But I have a big affection and love for New York. As you all know, I lived and grew up in New York and coming from Brooklyn and grew up in Queens and going to the funhouse and the garage and all that stuff at Zanzibar and playing out and being blessed to be part of the house music scene, you know, there was guys pre to me that were prevalent in our game. So welcome to True House Stories. I am Lenny Fontana with a new season, YouTube Live, and we're coming in strong and better than ever. And I'm introducing this man. Used to hear it like this. This master mix is mixed by Merlin Bob. And let me tell you something, a man who broke records on the radio at a time when house music was at its infancy, you know, Larry LeVan's playing at the garage, Frankie Knuckles playing at the warehouse. He's got another famous cousin, Tony Humphreys, rocking Zanzibar and from one station, New York to another, 107.5 WLS all the way to the right. And 98.7 KISS FM. Imagine that. Two family members, two major stations, breaking music continuously, okay? And taking it from the radio, breaking into nightclubs, creating a scene with another great DJ, Timmy Regisford, that used to do the Saturday nights in WBLS as well, opening up a club called The Shelter, on Varick Street, after the Paradise Garage was closed a few years, and creating a whole new era. For that is known as the Shelter Era. And those who remember Varick Street and Hudson, how crazy that was and all those all-night parties, okay? Um, and breaking records, and then doing what was done before, but doing it their way. And not only that, him going on to become a major executive and bringing all this great talent, like Roger Sanchez discovering, you know, brought Timmy Regisford into Atlantic Records and signed so many house records, 10 City with Marshall Jefferson. I mean, the list goes on and on. He's going to tell you all about that too. But incredible person, multi-talented, used to run three things at one time. I used to hear on the radio, I'm going, how's he doing this? Is he running two and then having an edit going at the same time? Well, he's going to tell you that too. So that's why we have to call him the magic man, Merlin Bob. So I'd like to welcome to True House Stories today, Mr. Merlin Bob. <laughs> wow, what an intro. Merlin, <laughs> that's the love we have for you, bro. Because I used to remember hearing that mix. Master Mix, Mix Bar, Merlin Bob. <laughs> it's like, yes, 
on a Friday night going out somewhere or going to your club to play, you were on the radio prepping us with the hot new tunes. And this is in the 80s, going right into the 90s, and 10 good, solid, long years. Yeah, yeah. Welcome, exactly. Brother Merlin. Thank Welcome. you, thank you. And thank you for this platform, and it's very important to the culture, so that's why I'm more than happy to be here. You know, a lot of us wondered, after Atlantic and Electra, you would, you know, you were so prevalent in as an executive, and you, you kind of, well, you didn't leave because you never left. But you know, things change, as we all know. Technology changes, times change, um, and you're not on the radio as what you were. Right. So people didn't realize what was going on with the Merlin Bob guy. You know, where is he? Where's this person? But you, and we knew you were around. And then all of a sudden you came back out, like out of the shadow. Here I am again, playing. Actually, I remember we did the Paradise. Oh, no, I was going to say Paradise Garage. I'm sorry, excuse me. The Shelter Anniversary, when I saw you, when you played, and I was doing the hosting for um, Sal Cremona, and you were playing the opening sets. And it was just like being back when the shelter opened. So welcome back, and glad you made the circle life back to the, to the wheels of steel. That's life for sure. It brings you full circle when you least expect. And um, it's been a harmonious journey and I'm glad to be back. And, uh, you know, that night was the night that I decided uh, with the with the inspiration from some good friends from Louie and Timmy and Carrie Chandler and, and Master Kev and um, uh, Spinner and Clark Kent, they all bust my chops like, Negro, you should get back out there and start playing again. You have time now, you consult now, you do things that you want to do. You know, you've had a long journey and it just convinced me to do so. And I couldn't figure any reason why not to. So I'm, I'm, uh, I'm enjoying it now. And I'm spinning again, that's, yes, to have fun primarily, but, um, I want to be a part of the, the continual journey of the genre of music that I believe myself and so many of my peers started um, in New York and Chicago and Detroit and, and Baltimore and New Jersey um, back in the late 70s, early 80s. Um, so, you know, I'm here to do shows like this and to do other things that are important to the, to the culture and um, to set the history straight going forward is very important too. Um, so, you know, I, I'm grateful for what, like I said, I'm grateful for what you're doing and so many others um, um, and that I can be a part of it still. You know, and everybody always says to me, damn Lenny, you know everybody. It's not easy getting people like you to come on because you don't talk all the time with certain fellas. Like I don't see you all the time. I mean, we ran into each other and we had that moment of, Hey, what's happening at the shelter thing? And it was just, you know, you just want to get people to hear you because they never got to hear you unless they were in your office hanging out with you or talking to you right. or starting a record, A&Ring, A&R, right. or they were coming up in the days WLS to maybe try to play a record to see if you would somehow get it in programming, you know, or, you know, jockey the, jockey the DJ, you know, Yo, bro, can you play this new track that we just did? And, but it's not like that anymore. So, you know, 
everybody thinks it's real easy to just get on social media and send messages. And a lot of times people don't respond, which is, I can understand why, because you don't know who you're talking to. Right. Right. Glad that we're all here. I know. And, and, you know, my, my, I've always been uh, pretty much on the DL, you know, my professional life is just like my personal and, and, you know, I like to keep business, business and my family life and my, you know, kids and everything else, they know that, you know, that's just how I've always been. Um, and it's actually helped me have this long career actually, because, you know, I can, move in the way that I want to move and and um, accomplish the things I want, but I'm doing it for the purpose of not trying to boast and not trying to be all out front and not trying to build myself up, but more so for the cause. Whatever that cause is, is what I work hard for. So, um, you know, it's not about anything else. So if, like I said, if someone contacts me and if it's something that I think is definitely worth it and meaningful, then I, I'm open to it sometimes. All right, so let's get right into it, brother man. Real simple question. How's music find you as a kid or you find the music? Take us on this journey. We gotta hear this. Well, how I found music as a kid. Wow. Um, I have to go all the way back to my grandfather playing consistently jazz every uh, weekend, um, showing me the Coltrane records and the Miles records, et cetera. Um, then it goes to, and I'm talking about from the age of six, seven, okay? And then it goes to my mother playing all the soul music every weekend back then. Um, and me hearing consistently, um, some of the greatest musicians and performers and artists of that time. Um, but I think the biggest, obviously, the biggest influence is my cousin, Tony, who was, Tony Humphreys, who was heavily into music since we were like five, six years old. He's uh, four years older than me. So he was my big brother, big cousin, big everything. Um, and he, called me when I was 10, I think I was, or nine, and said, come to the, come downstairs, come downstairs, because we lived in the same place uh, in, uh, in Brooklyn. And he had the Jackson 5 new album. And when I saw that album and I saw those five young black kids on that album cover, it just, you know how you have the light bulb moments, I just said, I knew that music was for me. But I knew I didn't want to perform or produce necessarily or be a songwriter. I wanted to do something within the business um, creatively and business-wise. So from that moment, you know, I said, you know, Tony, we, we tried to form a band at that, <laughs> at that time because I was in school and I was playing the trumpet and he was playing the drums. And needless to say, that didn't go too far, but, um, but yeah, that, that Jackson 5 album, seeing that, wholly inspired me and inspired us both. And at that point, he we started, you know, getting equipment together and especially he did, you know, I said he was older. So he was getting turntables and we were playing for our families, our aunt's parties. You know, your aunt 
and uncles would have those parties at, on Friday or Saturday night at the apartment or at the house or outside. And we play for those parties on the 45s. And, um, you yeah, know, that's how the music found me. And, and um, so, you know, I, I had, I felt it was a sixth sense of mine that I just opened up. Wow. See, that, see now nobody, I don't think anybody would have known that Tony would have called you downstairs. Nobody, unless that, and crazy. Which Jackson 5 album was it? The first one. The first one. I mean, I see it to this day. I mean, I, I, I literally looked at that thing for like hours. I couldn't believe what I saw, you know, because we were, you know, kids from Bed-Stuy and from East New York, you know, in, in a time where it was, you know, do or die Bed-Stuy. It's not right. It's like, it's Brooklyn like, Heights it's where it is now. It's like gentrified. It's a gentrified Brooklyn Heights. Right. So, you know, it wasn't a lot that we had to in inspire us where we grew up at all. And um, music, thank God we had music, because I don't even know if I'd be sitting here right now if, if we didn't have the music and we didn't find that sixth sense for it. Um, but yeah, that that um, that's how the music found me for sure. Wow, that's awesome. That album. So from there, I guess we got a long way to get to where we know you become the master mixer, but take us on your steps in, because it's important. Um, well, from there, my mother was able to get us to uh, the city. So she, at that time in New York, they had low-income housing um, in New apartment buildings that were going up and she was able to get us into a building on, on 26th Street because she worked at Bellevue, which wasn't too far from the down from the uh, from the place where we lived, the apartment building we lived, Phipps. And um, so we moved and Tony um, moved with us and uh, he lived with me and my mom and my next door neighbor was Timmy Regisford. And um, Tim and I became really best friends. He's like a year or two younger than me. And we became best friends. And really, he was into music just like I was. You know, we were like 11, 12 years old. And um, we would, um, my, my bedroom was next to his living room where he had his music playing and mine was playing. So we were like back and forth. And then um, this, at this time we were just putting records on a needle and playing records and looking for what we love. And Tony said, listen, you know, I'm gonna teach you guys how to spin. Um, so he taught Timmy and I how to DJ, how to mix. Um, and at that point, you know, it was at that point, it was like, okay, all we ever did was we were 13, 14, got our first jobs. And we, every dollar we made, half would go to our mom and the other half was buying records and equipment. And I would I had my setup in my bedroom and Timmy had his setup. So me, Timmy and Tony would just go back and forth as long as, as we would play as long and as loud as our mothers could deal with. And then we'd have to go to another apartment, my apartment, and go back to his, you know. But, um, but yeah, that's how it started. And um, going forward, um, 
Timmy was actually working at the garage. He worked in the coat room at the garage. And um, he was meeting a lot of people there uh, who were helping him, you know, move forward and get gigs and start DJing around the city. And um, Tony told me, listen, you know, we're gonna go to New Jersey on Wednesday. And I was like, New Jersey, Jersey. He's like this, um, a guy named Larry Patterson uh, said I should come out because Larry Levin play there um, on Wednesday night. So we ventured out to New Jersey and that's another thing that kind of definitely changed our lives. Um, we were back, we didn't, it was nonstop. Um, and at that point we started working there. I started working at Zanzibar at the door and um, Tony started playing there. So you were doing the front door, Tony's doing the turntables. And I remember Tony telling me this years and years back that he played his first night on those Dorrance turntables and it was horrific. It was, he was not ready. He was like, oh my God. Yeah. He said, it was just horrible. Yeah. <laughs> I remember yeah. telling me that. Horrible. Like Those were tough because we all played on 1100 A's or 1200s, if the 1200s were out there, I only remember. But um, those thorns were rough. They were not for, because we were, the three of us, we were really into mixing, like riding and mixing and like, um, you know, our heroes, T. Scott and Larry Levan and David Manicuso and et cetera, um, Larry Patterson, they didn't hold, they, they mixed, but they didn't hold mixes. So our whole thing was to be different was to actually ride mixes. Cause at that time there were more open tracks coming out that you could ride things under, et cetera. So we started, you know, experimenting more with mixing and those tables, those thorns were, they were not meant for that. <laughs> <laughs> And Larry LeVan would just slip records in. You go, wow, how did he just do that? Because it's just like, <laughs> you touch the platter and it just stopped. Yeah, I know. I know. 1100 was a workhorse. You could stand on it, 1100. It wouldn't break down. That yeah, thing, you just go, Doop. it's like, <laughs> so everybody always thought, See, now we never knew that, that it was like you guys were all, I mean, of course, you and Tony are, are cousins, family cousins, and Timmy as well. It's like, it's like one big family working around each other. One back. other thing, do you, you know Ruben Toro, right? Of course, Ruben lived in the building too, right? Yeah, when we were going back and forth mixing, little Ruben was sitting in the room every time with us, like... Because he lived two doors from us, me and Timmy, on the same floor, me, Timmy, and Tony. So when every time we were mixing, he was just sitting there listening and, and checking it out. So a lot of us came from that that um, neighborhood. And across the street was um, uh, Robert Chavellas. Right. From CNC Robert Music Valles. Factory. Right. 
a plethora of a plethora of great talent came just out of that one building. Four DJs. Incredible. Did we lose Merlin Bob? I hope we didn't lose him because now this is when the story is getting really good. So those that are just joining us, Merlin Bob is explaining how life begun in the lower part of Manhattan. Okay. And Robert Cavill's of the cross the street, Tony Humphreys, Timmy Regisford, and himself all were amongst each other doing his thing. We hope he comes back. Welcome everybody to the show. It's the first of the season. And even Ruben Toro, the Latin Bull, and Merlin Bob is back. The, the Latin Bull himself, Ruben Toro, was part of that whole gang. I was just explaining again to everybody. You back with us, Merlin? You good? Merlin? Hello? Merlin Bob? You there? Can you hear me? Unless something, tell me a little technical issue. Yeah. You, there you go. Okay. Yeah. I'm just reminding everybody, just refreshing while we lost you for a moment, how two Puerto Ricans and three brothers come from one area. Cavillas, or well, is it Dominican? or I forget, Dominican or, or Puerto Rican? I forget with Robert. But anyway, crazy, bro. That's nuts. Yeah. Here we're thinking on the outside. Oh, let me talk from the people who are watching. Like the wars are beginning. Tony Humphreys in Zanzibar and he's on Kiss. And then you guys are on BLS and, you know, fighting for number one station. You know what I mean? Like we're thinking the war is happening because you're going back and forth on the radio. But we'll let you get to that, too. Um, so Ruben Toro is, is, is the little guy hanging out, watching you guys in total awe. Or doing your thing in the apartments. Yes. Did you guys do pottery mixes too? Did you have uh, Bozaks and Yuri's? Are you playing on? Well, as we when we started on the when we were on the radio, we did yes. But okay, pre uh, back, then, back then we had Radio Shack. Oh, Radio Shack! Yes, <laughs> yes, major upgrade from Radio Shack. Yes. Yeah, we had the first Radio Shack mixer, like little like. And we were trying to figure that shit out. Excuse me, trying to figure that That's out. It's all right. It's all right. This is a good. Oh yeah, show. okay. We were it's trying to figure this shit out. We, we were like, took us forever, but we finally got it, and it worked. You know. But Merlin, let me ask you: Was Tony at El Morocco at that time? Was yeah, that that's how you know because when we moved to the city, he lived with us. So we, Tony and I, would scour the city, go to every club, and my aunt helped him get a job at um, the Daily News. And the mail room at that time, he was like 17 or 18, right? And um, because he was working in the mail room, he befriended the music colonist who was a brother at the Daily News. And he was a much older gentleman, maybe in his 50s. And he was like, you know what? You're a good guy, man. You know your music. He said to Tony, he's like, here, take my passage. Remember back then, the Daily News was like the Times. You can go anywhere and get in anywhere. So Tony and I would, that's how we used, we would 
teenagers going to Studio 54. We just show our daily news badges. We go to any club in New York back then. Um, so because Tony and I were scouring the cities, he, we went to El Morocco one night because it was right up the block from, it was off 2nd Avenue or 1st Avenue. Right, on 54th uh, And we were on 26th and 2nd, you know? So we would go up and he went in and he had an audition and he got the job. And it was like, we thought we had discovered oil or something, you know, it was like the greatest thing ever. He got his first gig in a real club. And, you know, that was the El Morocco. That's how it happened. Yo, were you at the audition too when he auditioned? No, I was too young to go in. I was, oh, like, I was gonna say, whoa, what was that like? I was just no, I, was I was like 14 or something. Yeah. You didn't lie like we all did. Yo, man, I'm seven, I'm 18. It yeah, looked like well, like 13. We didn't want to do anything to mess up his possibilities of getting it. So I was like, I, I waited outside for him actually. Like a good cousin would, like a good family member, just waiting, hoping to God he got this job, right? Like he needs this job. Was Tony at that time playing the way that we all got to know him later with the long overlaying and all that? Or was he still learn getting his feels? You if you remember at that time. Uh-oh. Please, the internet hold us. Hello, Jeff. Hello, everyone. Merlin, you with us? I think Merlin's having a bit of a moment the computer is whacking out here it comes maybe come back and just as the story is getting in depth and strong we get a wi-fi i think a wi-fi issue on mr merlin bob let me take him down wait let's add him to the state nope is he back is he back yet sorry everybody for this let's see if he comes back anyway those are joining us to recap we go to we go to El Morocco for Tony Humphreys and his audition, and Merlin's standing outside waiting, hoping that guess Tony gets this job. Let's see if Merlin's back. Mr. Merlin Bob. Merlin, you there with us? I don't know if he's if if something's going on. I'm sorry, everyone, for the technical difficulty. It's like crazy. This is like our first day back, and we're having. Oh God! All right, let's see if we can get Mr. Merlin Bob back. Let me remove him for a second. Put your questions up, everybody, who's watching the show, because I know I have tons of questions. I have tons of questions that are going through my mind as Merlin's unfolding each piece of this story and i'm telling you this is real historical this is pre pre master mixes this is pre tony getting his his kiss 98.7 when shep brings him in and all that this we're going to find out how merlin gets the job at wls and hopefully we can get mr merlin bob back and is mr merlin back I don't know. Merlin Bob, you with us? Yep. I'm not no, sure what's happening. No. But, uh, Everybody's going like this. No, don't leave. <laughs> Especially now we're in El Morocco. We're all going. 
Okay, so you're being a good cousin, waiting to hear Tony tell you something. This is like you're waiting out there, right? So what happens? Um, he comes out and he says, you won't believe this, bro. They're going to let me play. Uh, we went running down the block, you know, excited, oh. crazy, you know. And that was the first. He was the first of us three to, to actually have a gig in a real club in New a York. A real City. gig. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Damn, Merlin. I wish I could have been a fly on the wall with all that. I would have been dying to see this. Go ahead. So now Tony starts playing El Morocco. This has got to be around 79 or earlier. Uh, it's 77, 79. Somewhere, yeah, somewhere around there, right? there, you know. I can remember it, but I don't remember the, the years. All right, it's around that time. Devil's Gun era, around yeah, yeah. all those yeah, things. Yeah. Right, yeah. CJ and companies like the big record, high, higher mountain, higher mad mountain. Because if you guys are running around a studio, that's 77, 78 around that time, right? And Damn. this is one weird Tony and I, he took me to the loft when I was 14, and um, and that was in 76 or 77, and um. So that's where we were. Um, that's where I got my education on on music and sound and and um, the culture and everything else. It was just I used to sit in the bass bottoms in in the loft and just like listen to Trans Europe Express. And I swear the train went right through the club, man, because it was just the most amazing sound you'd ever want to hear. But um, but yeah, at that time, Tony. And I and Timmy we were influenced by David Manacuso, because um, this is all pre pre garage. Garage opened in '77, but we didn't really get into the garage until uh, like '79. Um, okay, so you get so, the Mancuso School. We know you got the Mancuso School. One record gets played, and once we in. started going to um, the garage. Um, well, I'll backtrack a little. When I was 16, because we were like 17 when we started going to the garage. When I was 16, uh, Tony, since he was playing El Morocco, now he was getting more music. He can go to the um, record pools and say, and to the labels and the independents and say, listen, I'm at this club and it was legit. And he'd get all this music. Uh, so he didn't have to buy it anymore because, you know, we were out buying imports and everything every weekend and now we didn't have to buy them anymore so when um i was 16 he took me to um prelude records to see larry patterson and this is the first time i met him and um when we left i asked tony what he did he said well he does the a and r for uh prelude and i was like a and r what is that right he explained it to me and I was like, I had another light bulb moment. It was like, that's what I want to do. That's you it. Knew right there? You knew right there? That's I knew right then and there. I just, when he explained it to me, because like I said, when I saw that Jackson 5, I knew I wanted to be in the business, but I didn't want to perform like they were. I wanted to be creative and do business. And um, I mean, I didn't say business back when I was, 12 years old, 10 years old, but I just knew I wanted to do something else. And when I was 16 and he explained that to me after we left Larry Patterson and explained what he does for Prelude, 
I knew that's what I wanted to do. And so it's kind of, it was a subconscious thing in my head uh, going forward. And I knew my best way to catapult that or to get, um, um, a stepping stone going to accomplish that was through DJing and building my brand as a DJ. Um, so that was very important to me. Did you really know that at that moment or that just happens in time? Because there was well, no, there was no, there was nothing to look at back then. Like that kind of, like now you have YouTube and all that stuff to give you some pointers. You know, well, I, I knew I had to do two things to be in the because I wanted to be in that seat that Larry Patterson was in like that. It just amazed me when I went into this record label and like all the artists that we loved. And this guy was the person who was responsible for them. Like I just knew at that age of 16, that's what I want to do. I want to, you know, create music that millions of people are affected with in a positive way, as corny as it sounds, but it's, it, it does affect people for a lifetime. All the music we know and hear, and, and to be the one person responsible for that, for millions and millions of people, both here in the States and all over the world, was uh, uh, something that I aspired yeah, to do. I'm gonna tell you something. You got your mama saying, you better get your ass in school. And you better do so. What she's expecting you to bring home? What did they have for you? What was in their mind? You gonna be a lawyer? You gonna be a doctor? Was that part of it, or you just knew music was the game end game for you always? Oh no! Great. Can you repeat that? Oh, okay, good. Because because you you did the Mitch McConnell. You went. <laughs> I was saying is. With your mom being you living in her house, you there? Yeah, I'm here. <laughs> I'm here. I'm here. You, you you living on the mom's roof. What was her thinking for you as far as what she was dreaming your profession to be? Were you, was she hearing this idea as well? You being in the music industry, or she had you out to be a lawyer or something like that, like a doctor. Let's see if we get him back. Yes, everyone. This is historical. This can't be any more historical than, than this man. I was just saying, if Merlin's back here, can are you back, Merlin? Are you there? The Wi-Fi is kicking out. Merlin Bob, hello? Hello? Anyway, we'll wait for Merlin to come back. As we were saying, I can speak for myself. My mom and dad had no idea that there would be ever a chance to make it in music at that time. They all had this theory that you go into music, you're not going to make it. You're going to be broke. You're going to never make it. And it's something that it's, it's not like now. It, this is so street level what he's talking like you know you're running around here we go you're running around town and merlin's at prelude with marvin schlack this record label at the time he's with larry patterson probably met michael gomes all those people francois there yep. 
Francois editing. This is all groundbreaking stuff. And he knows right at this moment that you want to be now the A&R. But the question I had was with your mom, did your mother have plans for you to become like a doctor or a lawyer? Or Because this music thing is like, what? A&R? What are you talking about A&R? Because you didn't even know what A&R meant, right? So what was mom thinking? Mom's is like, yeah, she was, fortunately, myself, my mother and Timmy's mother, you know, they were very, very, very supportive. Um, and they just liked that we weren't out in the streets, okay, doing other crazy stuff at that time, during that time in New York. Even Manhattan was crazy back then. I mean, you know, and there was plenty of gangs going around back then and plenty of recruitment going on. And they were just happy that we were in the house playing music loud every day and not running around doing other crazy shit. So um they knew where you were. They they yeah. heard the music, they said yep. he's safe. Okay, we'll deal with the noise. Exactly. <laughs> deal with the noise. We but, know you know what I did was um I had a second love which was art and architecture. So I went to high school for architecture and I went to college for architecture and I have a degree in architecture. So um Music, I knew I couldn't, back then, you couldn't go to school to be in the music business. It's just like, come on, are you kidding me? It's right, about, and there's a bunch of people that, thank you, Merlin, explain that there was no, I'll go spend 600 or $1,000 and become, there was no, yeah. right? Tell it's them. It's all about who you knew, uh, to get into the business, is about how you built your brand. The business has had to want you. You didn't want to be in the business and then you just stepped in. No, you, you had to, they had to come for you. Um, so like I said before, that's what I, I figured I needed to do is build my brand as a DJ and, and anything and everything else I can do. I was in, I went from, you know, DJing to going in the studio, learning how to engineer, to learning how to edit, to learn anything and everything I could learn how to do. I would go to the studio and be a runner. I didn't care as long as I was in there learning, um, it didn't matter. And, you know, we never slept, you know, fortunately I'm a nocturnal by nature. So we never slept because we were, it was around the clock, um, learning and getting experience and, and, um, and building your brand. And as of course, in New York city, the biggest building block of the brand was Larry LeVan, the paradise garage. I mean, it doesn't get any bigger than that. So you're looking at the queen or should I say the king or queen of everything with the greatest sound system to benchmark, it's like, where do you start from there? Because you want to do your thing and you want to make a difference, right? Well, well, what it is, is that uh, I went to, I can say this now. And when I say build my brand, I mean, I was from the age of 16 going forward. I didn't know that's what I was doing, but I'm saying it now in a sense, that's what I was doing without knowing, the understanding the importance of, of brand building. I just wanted to, continue to, to do what I love. And from that came brand building. And then I understood how to be in the business that the business had to want you. So I continued that. But I could also say I went to school for architecture and have a degree in architecture, but my degree in music comes from the Paradise Garage. Right, PDG, PG University, right. Yeah, without like Larry taught me so much, and I don't mean about necessarily DJing. I'm talking about music, 
and the crowd and control um, <laughs> um, how to select the right music. Are you there? Yeah, we're here. Did we get lost again? No, it's all right. You good? I, I don't know if it's the Wi-Fi on your end. Um, let me see. Hold on one second. Everybody. You're all right. Let me try this. Wait, wait. Merlin's getting into Paradise Garage High School. I've talked about this, everybody. I've talked about. I've talked about this myself over interviews, and he's telling exactly how it happened. Pre me, go ahead, Merlin. Take back, take it back. Paradise Garage University. You there, Lenny? Okay. I'm here. Paradise Garage University. Okay. Tell us. Tell us. Go ahead. Yeah, Larry. Um, I can give you one incident. When I was working at the radio station, you know, when I started doing the mix shows, then I got a job there as in programming. Um, and then a year later, I became an assistant program director. So all the record labels had to come to me and the program director and play their music for us to decide what was going to go in the air uh, and get programmed. So there was a record bought to me uh, by the rep at Warner Brothers, the promotional rep. Um, and I was like, no, nah, that's some West Coast stuff. We're not playing that. I'm not feeling it. Um, but the song was blowing up everywhere else outside of the East Coast. And um, actually, that night, because it was a Friday, that night, I said, I'm going to go over to the garage. I walk in, and what do I hear? Larry playing that song and everybody going crazy. And I went back to the station and put it in and put it into programming. <laughs> so what I learned was, you know, it's really about the music. It's not about a location. You know, people love great music. They want to hear something different sometimes. And if it's a hit, it's a hit. And that song was Rumors. Do you remember the song? These are all these rumors. <laughs> yeah, it happening every day. Yeah, yeah. And you're right. It had that West Coast groove to it. It definitely was not like a, a typical New York record, but it just took New York by storm. But that's just one of, one of one. the many, one of many, 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 many ways that Larry taught me so much. And his remixes taught me so much. His, his, um, his selection of what he remixed taught me so much. His the way he was able to have one foot on the dance floor and one foot in the DJ booth when he played taught me so much. Him and David Manicuso. Um, so that between the loft and in the garage, that was my university. That's where I learned the business. So, and with WBLS to become a, a, a PD, an associate of um, associate program director, under mm -hmm. who were you under at that time? Who was the actual PD at the station? Um, um, B.K. Kirkland. B.K. Kirkland, right? Ray Attaway was the actual music director. And she said, listen, Merlin, you, you know, you're out there. You can do this. You know, you can be my assistant program director. You meet with all these. And that's what really opened up my doors to the record labels, is that all the record labels had to come to me to play me their music. Please. And that please. opened up a whole nother world, because the record business in itself is a whole nother world. But before you know, I get to that, Merlin, how did you get the job at BLS? What was the, op the door opener for you to get in there? How did it begin? 
Merlin? I didn't hear that. Yeah. Okay. How, what was the door opening moment for you to get the job in BLS? WBLS? Oh, um, I was at Zanzibar. Uh, first, I started working in the coat room. Then I started working the stage, setting up the stage for Shaka, which was my greatest thing I ever did in the world, because she was my my hero, Harris. And um, yeah, then I became the doorman because I knew if I was the doorman back then, doorman with everything, you know, like besides getting you know treats as they would call them. But I would meet everybody coming in from the business, you know, and Zanzibar was known for having all the top artists and performers at that time. So I wanted to be the doorman. And um, so I was a doorman then at the time, but I was going home every morning from Zanzibar as a doorman practicing and DJing and practicing until like the next day, the next, till that night, you know, I'd, I'd never slept. So one night, um, this is when Timmy, first got on BLS and Tony was on KISS for like maybe a few months with Shep Petty. That's right. Right. And Timmy said, yo, bro, I got to go to London for the first time. Um, I want you to um, stand, stand in for me. You know, he's like, you can do it, bro. I know. Come on, man. And I was like, a hundred percent, you know, I got it. And um, from that moment on, I started working at um, BLS doing the mix show. I was doing Friday nights and Timmy was doing Saturday nights for the longest. And then Timmy got really busy because he started working at Motown. That's right. And then I started doing both Friday and Saturday nights along with Tony doing Friday and Saturday nights. So it was like, you know, our dream came true. Like you talk about three blessed brothers, you know? <laughs> Like we went from not knowing what our future was in Bed-Stuy to um, listening to Larry and T. Scott and David Todd and all these guys on the radio and um, dreaming about it when we were like 12, 13, 14 years old. That's what we actually... were doing. That's what we were all doing. The same thing when you were playing, dreaming about being oh, on the really? <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's, it's truly a blessing. We would have wait. never imagined the three of wait, us wait, would be doing To get that door job, did you work for Shelton Hayes at the of time? Of course. Shelton was, oh, Shelton was the asking, doorman. They were asking me, you're doing doors. So how did you get the job at Zans? Was it Shelton or Tony brought you in? No, Tony, when Tony and I first went to, to Zanzibar, when Larry asked us to come out, we didn't, we were back there every Wednesday, okay? And I was, Tony was trying to get a gig DJing so I didn't want to, obviously, I'm not going to step on my cousin's toes. So I said, I'm going to work here some way or another, too. I don't care if I have to work in the code room. Um, and I started working in the code room, and he started DJing alongside uh, Larry. And um, then eventually Shelton said he was going to stop working on Wednesday. So I was like, told the manager, please give me a chance. You know, you had to be 21, supposedly, to get into Zanzibar. But I was 18 at the time. And they took a chance, you know, they, and they, you know, I have to give it to Al Murphy, Shelton Hayes, Larry Patterson. Let me show. Hey, wait, wait, look at everybody. Look at, look at him. Look how handsome. Oh, yeah. was. Look at him. Look at him. Look at that boy. Look at that man with his tux pants on. It's in his tie. 
That's yeah, the that was, class right there, everybody. Class. That had to be our anniversary party. That's the only time I'm, I'm just saying. I'm just showing that was yeah, a yeah. for Zanzibar. That's the only picture we have, but that's there he is. Wow. Look, thank um, you for getting that picture to us because that actually makes sense. Yeah, that was that was that was um I figured I'd be at the door. I'm gonna meet everybody, all the people in the business that come through. So it was so it was at that time, so I get the timing right. Shep is hot now too. Shep Pettibone's mixing and doing crazy amounts of mixes. Incredible, incredible. Hot. hot. The clap, the okay. Tony Humphreys is not yet on KISS, or was he on KISS when he got the job at Zanzibar and you were all working together? No, he was on KISS, but he was doing like special mixes. He wasn't on on the weekends like Shep was still doing the weekends. Tony was doing like special like mixes. He would take like the best of Philly International and put all those together in a mix. And they would play at certain times of the evening or day or whatever. Um, so he was doing like special mixes. So he Shep had him in like a um, prerequisite kind of position, you know, doing things to see how he really was coming through. Um, so yeah, during that time, um, he hadn't started yet, um, the weekend parties. Right, so that was just like, he would do a medley, the medley mix for this. Right, right. because mm -hmm. I remember Tony wasn't on on weekends at that time. He was right. just he was just doing special like three-day weekend. They put him on the Sunday or whatever it was. And then he'd do a 30-minute superset. He used to call them the supersets back then or whatever it was back right. then. So, okay people realize this, how incredible this is. Two family members, three family members, because Timmy's family, too, in yeah. the whole game. My brother. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Controlling New York radio, black radio. Controlling it. Completely controlling it at and night. They were the number one and number two stations in the country. How's that craziness? That's nuts. I know. I, it's hard to believe now, but, you know, we didn't think about it much then. Flowers. I'm, I'm putting, I'm resting flowers on that part because these were the hottest jobs to have. The exposure to, to you, the amount of millions of people at night listening to these shows and recording these shows. And because you go on YouTube, they have your old shows up. It's crazy. Yeah. All right, Merlin. Wow. So you got to work, you got to set up Shaka Khan stage. That's a, that's a changing moment. Yes. And you even get to become assistant, uh, assistant PD and 10 music years. director, assistant music director, excuse me, assistant music. And, and how long did you stay as that, in that particular job, in that job title? I'd say for like three years. Um, and that's when um, Atlantic and Columbia and I think Arista um, called me to interview for A&R jobs. Oh, so the dream that you projected now is now thrown in front of you. Yeah, yeah. All right. Because, you know, I was on the radio back then. I was meeting everybody at every label. They had to come to me to the number one station in the country to get their records played. You know, um, you know, it's crazy when I talk about it now, but back then we were just young and like grateful, which I still am, but we were just grateful to be doing what we loved. We didn't understand the true importance of those positions that we had and the position we had to be on the radio to play 
um, the music that started a whole genre, you know? Yeah. Damn right it did. And, and, and to control the records that you thought were appropriate for your set became many others in their set, not just you anymore. You're exposing all of us to this new track. And now, oh, what's that record? I don't know what this record is. You know, it's like Virgo mechanically replayed. How much did you play that record? Re, replay, replay, replay. I used to hear that on your show all the time. I mean, you played so many records that were so underground and became massive club hits. Some went on to become commercial hits. And of course, we're taking a commercial break, everybody. Let me see the kind of questions while my man Merlin Bob gets back to us. Let's see if he's back yet. Merlin, you back? Yes. Did you hear what I said about how, for example, you played Virgo mechanically replayed the death out of that record, man, and had everybody looking for that bootleg. Everybody looking for that bootleg. You know what I'm saying? Like, mm. records like that, I can remember, like, yesterday. It was like the ultimate DJ. You know, you, you, you're just doing what you loved, and again, teaching a whole new generation that was a little younger than you. What you experienced and brought to now the radio and of course, here comes the major companies now wanting to grab you because they respect what you're doing and almost like you're a superhero in a sense. Well, they, they felt in a sense, um, if I can choose and pick or be part of the radio station that breaks some of the biggest songs in the country, then I should be able to have the ability to pick and choose artists that can break worldwide. So it was that kind of, um, you know, um, possession, I should say, you know, that went into the the mindset of the industry. Like I said before, the industry has to want you, you know, no matter how much you want to be in the industry, if the industry doesn't want you, then right. it's not happening. So um, you obviously you have to build your brand and, and build your knowledge and get your um your resume you know up and strong well and you got brother timmy at motown already right you got tony and kiss you're doing bls you understand the the mechanics now what's going on exactly and they come in three major companies come for you now right at mm -hmm. the door banging the door what happened merlin who'd you go with i know who you went but who was the um, door opener well it wasn't I met with all three, um, but Atlantic was, you know, Donnie, Donnie Hathaway, you know what I mean? Like that was, that was it for me. You know, Atlantic had so many, especially at that time, this is, and this is really moving forward. We're back, we're in 85 now, you know? Um, and this is after like six years, five or six years at the radio station, you know? Um, so I went with Atlantic. Um, it was very important. And my mother had a lot to do with that that choice too, because she always loved everyone on Atlantic, <laughs> Aretha Franklin and et cetera, et cetera. Um, so yeah, I went with Atlantic. And even though at that time, Atlantic was like the number 11th or 12th um, as far as ur urban music was concerned, um, 
and the other labels were much stronger, much stronger back then. Right. Uh, black music and urban music. Um, but for me, I wanted the challenge. I figured it's easy to go somewhere that's happening, you know, and, and, but I want to go somewhere and build it up, especially a label in a division um, that has always been my favorite as far as their, their artists and repertoire in the past that I grew up with. So, um, yeah, I went to Atlantic and within two years we were number one label. Um, fortunately, I, you know, have a, not only with dance music and house music and DJing, but, you know, I grew up in, with hip hop, you know, I grew up in the seven, late seventies when hip hop was emerging. So, and me and Tony, and Tim, we were all into hip hop. We were into punk music. We were into salsa. We were into everything because New York was a melting pot at that time. And we were all into every genre that was happening at that time. And every club that had this, we were in, um, um, you know, the, uh, what do you call, what's the name again? CBGBs, you know? <laughs> We were, you know, we were everywhere, you know. So um, that was important for me to um, so, to what? actually not just sign because initially, you know, when I first went in, you know, major labels didn't have anything want to have anything to do with house music because you know they thought it was a fad. They thought hip hop was a fad. Um, and of course, as we know, hip hop kind of dominated house music and house music um, went to Europe uh, in the 80s. And uh, hip hop became more prevalent and became the genre of the decades to come. Uh, and now it's come full circle, pretty much. You know, hip hop is starting to any genre that's around for over 50 years eventually starts to get watered down and it's just not the same. And eventually it's on this kind of on its way out, unfortunately. Um, so I'm glad to see at this point how dance and house music has done a, a, a full circle and come back. Yes. Is, is But Merlin, wait a second. You get the job Atlantic. Mm -hmm. What's your responsibility when you first start? As a director of A&R. And what does that exactly mean when you say it that? I, it means I was responsible for finding talent um, to fuel the artist roster. You don't have a record company without an artist roster. You don't have a record company without an A&R staff uh, to fuel the music and the artists that make the company um, and that sell the records that that uh, financially support the company. So, um, you know, A&R is probably the most important position and department there is in any music or entertainment business. So when, and, you're, when you're in an A&R position, artist and repertoire, your job is to find raw talent, basically, and hone it, right? Like a diamond, you know, work it. Well, it's, two, it's two things, you, you're, you're there's already an existing roster. So you have to look at that roster and see what you work with. Some people, some artists may get dropped. Some artists may get put up front because you have to continue to develop them. 
And then you're also responsible for continuing to build a roster and sign new artists. Um, some artists can be self-contained that are write and produce themselves. Um, that's few and far in between sometimes um, that you find a real, real true talent that has the ability like a prince or something that does it all themselves. And then you'll, but majority of the artists you work with, you'll find a great singer or you'll find a great producer or you'll find a great songwriter. And you have to mold that, you have to develop that. And like we say in the business, it takes an overnight sensation is 10 years in the making in the music business. And right, one minute later. Developed. Right, 10 years for the one minute to go snap, to turn, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. So, um, so that was my responsibility when I first got there as director. And um, fortunately, I made some signings on the hip hop and R&B side um, that got us to a number one position the year later, a year and a half later, from 11 to one. And we stayed there for years um, consistently um, through the artists. Uh, but, you know, when I got there, one thing I always in the back of my head was I got to sign some underground dance slash house artist um, because that genre was just too important to me. The, the culture was too important to me. Um, and so, you know, we started to and, you know, Atlantic, we were some of the one of the first major labels to really start signing a lot of dance music and house music. Damn right. Damn right you were. Because I, I say it all the time. Marshall Jefferson, Byron Stingley. I mean, the list goes on and on. The people you brought in, Roger Sanchez. I mean, it's all through your tenure there. Gary Chandler. Gary Chandler. Roland Clark. And Keep going. The Burrell brothers. <laughs> and Reggie Burrell and Ronald. And I used to get Louie and David. You know, these all guys I grew up with. We were all teenagers coming up together. So I would get them to do as many remixes as possible, you know anything that I needed to be remixed. And, you know, the labels would give me a hard time back there, the label. That's, um, that's important. They don't, people don't understand that. They think it was super easy, your job, uh, right? No, 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 no. You got to get and, everything okay, right? All budgets got to be okay. You got to go through all kinds of loopholes. It's not that easy. And like, for instance, with Ten City, most um, artists that I would sign back then, hip hop and R&B, well, mainly the R&B artists and the pop artists would be signing to a actual album deal. Whereas with, you know, Ten City and the house artists, you know, everything was singles until they proved themselves. And then it had, it went into an album. Let me show Byron. Look at Byron Stingley. There's Byron Stingley from Ten City and still going strong today with Merlin. Still mm -hmm. going strong. Like Byron had to, we did two singles with him before we did the album and it was... The, one of the first gold house music albums, period. Um, and C.C. Rogers, we did two singles with him before we did an album um, and so on. But, you know, it was, this is something I wanted to bring up too, that, because um, I know that people go back and forth with the, where did house music come? Was it New York? It was in Chicago. And um, I only have my only, my interpretation because I was there, okay? <laughs> it, but, you know, there's room for discussion, of course. But um, we started creating underground dance music in New York because of 
the garage and the loft and Mellon's and Bond Street and all these places that played underground dance music is what we were influenced by. The disco, the R&B, the, the jazz, the this, the that. And all of us that were young then that were in those clubs, when we went home to create, we created our own music, which was underground dance music or house music. That's what was influenced us influenced us to start this genre. And I it was happening in Chicago with um, um, the warehouse and powerhouse, I believe, and the clubs there. And the first, oh, you there, Lenny? Yeah, I'm here, I'm here. I think I lost you again. No, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. You there? You can hear me? Hear you loud and clear. We were just hearing about Powerhouse okay. and, and um, Chicago. Go ahead. So anyway, that's what I wanted to make a point of. I wanted Where's to make it? the point that, you know, that's where, where house wait, music wait. comes from. Wait, you know, wait, wait. Whether you're in New York or Chicago. Hang on. Let's bring Merlin Bob back. Got to ask him the question. It's in my mind. Because Timmy Regisford is involved in this as well. And so is his cousin, Tony Humphreys. May we bring him back from bring him back to the stage again. Okay. Merle yeah. Bob. T Timmy Redisford's got this young man named Boyd Jarvis playing keyboards all over the all over those records. Okay. People always sweat about this. And this is my perspective. I've said this many times. Maybe they'll make get their shotgun and want to shoot me. But I always did say. On Prelude Records, the visual record, the music got me with your cousin, Timmy, and Boyd, and Jason singing with Anthony Malloy in the background has to be one of the first of house music, if not the first. <laughs> I didn't want to say, get your shotguns out. I'm going to let Merlin say it because he was around them. He was, he was right there. He has to know this. Merlin well, gives the perspective. Come on. Listen, you said it for me. I, you couldn't have said it any better. I'll be honest with you. I've said um, it many times. I've given Timmy credit on this. I've given Tony Humphreys credit on it. I've given uh, my my closest friends, Anthony Malloy, singing backgrounds. And, and we we listen this, and that was the first release. We were doing that prior for back in Timmy's bedroom. Me, him, boy, Tony. We were in there. And for years prior to that, it wasn't until we got the deal that it came out in 83. And I know the first Chicago House record release was On and On by Jesse Sanders, which was 84. Right. So I'm not going <laughs> to. So, you know, I'm sure Terry is going to give me a call like, what's going on here? What are y'all saying? But. Um, and Hosh Gorelli just said it correctly. He said the only thing was it wasn't called house music. And he's just that I give Chicago 200%. They branded it. We were all listening to and influenced by the same underground clubs. And we all went and created similar sounding music, which was underground dance music, is what we called it. They called it house music. But they branded it really well. And we went with it. We were like, okay, fine. We'll we'll call it all house music. It's fine. We're all doing the same thing here. 
So Merlin, give us give us the birds the bird's eye view of that bedroom making that record. Like I know you were around seeing Boy and them all doing their thing. What was that like? Was it like what we dreamed it would be, like these keyboards and all that stuff, or was it just yeah, there, was, there was first of all, Timmy had his setup, tables, everything, two reel to reels, just like I had. We both had two reel to reels, our equipment set up, our speakers hanging, we had drilled up in the ceiling, which we weren't supposed to do. And then Boyd had two keyboards. Uh, we're in there with Smokey in there because Boyd smoked like crazy. Yep. And, you know, he was, as soon as he hit a, a bass line or something, we both go, oh, shit. What was that? Yo, bro, keep it going. But, you know, it was really ingenious of Tim to bring him on the station when he played with him. That was really a first that had ever happened uh, live like that. Where he was playing on top of his his mixes, and that was the key for each one of us. Me, for Tony, Tim, and I, self, we all said we have to have our own identities. You know, none of us wanted to. Tony taught us how to play, but then he was like, "Okay, go off and do your thing." We can't all sound the same, okay? Um, so Timmy, that was his thing uh, with Boyd and. That was the first ever done. First time it was ever done that way. And for me, it was, I was always into production and producers and remixes. So I always wanted my mixes to sound like a remix. So when people heard me on the radio and they heard their favorite song with another song on top of it or under it or another song behind it, when they go to a club and hear it, they're going to think about, oh, shit. I want to hear it like I heard it before. I never heard it like this before. So for me, it was always, you know, finding those melodies that match, finding the chords that work together that you wouldn't expect. It was always about telling a story when I played. So you're actually really more, like even more than just DJing, you're actually like producing even further in the in the sense of mixing those records. Well, that's the way I looked at it because I was always a producer, more than just a DJ. I mean, even when I worked started at Atlantic, one of the reasons that we did so well is because I started doing these production deals and giving production deals to the creative side who would bring me artists also. You know, when I, I signed in Vogue back then because I went to Mel, McElroy and McForster to, I signed MC Light too. So I went to them to, to produce her album and they said to me, listen, we have this girls group. I was like, oh, really? So let me hear it. And you know what I mean? So when you're, to me, it was always about producers. Because mm -hmm. I love the producers, like Philly International, the Motown. The, um, so that's why when I played, I kind of heard that too. I heard doing, taking songs and making them different than what you would normally hear them as like almost like a remix or reproduction of them, but from mixing, from DJing. Right. Wow. Cause that's, cause I'm, and I'm trying to get into the masterminding of all this because I know there's, there's formulas that went into your decisions, you know, with your signings, because the way you played music was like a kaleidoscope of how you, like you said, I would have an under, an underlaying bed and two or three things running on top. It's like making a whole new record, you know, yeah. before it was even that in a sense. 
So it's crazy. It's why it's amazing to hear you break it down. And then, you know, I remember every week with Timmy Show, for example, Boy would be playing these new parts, and everybody would be sweating looking for the new mix. And it was no new mix. That was just yeah. doing it live. People were like, Wait, yo, I want this version of Speculation or Release Detention. You remember? Yeah, of course. Every week you guys were playing new versions. It's like, what version is this? What version? These versions don't exist. You, Manny Lehman would be like having a headache going, I don't know what version this is. This doesn't exist, you know? Yeah. From Vinyl Mania. I would be the first to ask him, you ever heard, you know this version that Merlin played? It must be something Timmy gave him. <laughs> that's exactly what it was because it was like we wouldn't you never heard those versions come out of those records yeah, I, I used to i had so many boy tracks just tracks that i would play things under and and over and you know every week people were like what the hell where was where can i get that version but that's what you want you want exclusivity back then when you know it's not like now everybody can pop and get what they want uh, most of the time, um, but back then it was just very difficult, and you know it also gave us our own brand. It gave us something that you know set us apart from everyone else. And um, you know, I know the guys in Chicago were on the radio too. It's starting to do more and more. Steve Silk Hurley was really cool back then. He used to send me things all the time, all the time. And even, I think he even had me on this show there uh, once in GCI. Um, but of course, Marshall would send me things and, you know, it, it was, they, I got so much from Chicago um, when they first started really producing a lot of music um, and I would play what I like, because I don't play anything that I don't like. And that I don't think my audience is gonna like. I don't play stuff just because it's new or because it's exclusive or whatever. I never, it had to be hot, okay? Or it had to have a funky, I don't care if it was a four track or 24 track, you know? Uh, I would play it if it was hot. And those guys would send me cassettes, they'd send me reel to reels of things that were muddy and like four track or eight track. And this, it, some of that shit was just so hot, I would I would have to play it. And work it. And I would love it. and and. They loved it and they would send me more and more for three reasons. They wanted to get it signed by me maybe, or played on the radio or played in our clubs, you know, or in shelter. Oh, well, that's the next step. That's the next step. As Atlantic is, you know, you're doing R&B and house and you're signing all these acts. There's a big void that happened in New York. 87, as we all remember, September 87, garage closes. So for a few years, up until the time Shelter comes into play, there's Baseline, there's some clubs, Junior's playing downtown, Palladium, Underground. Let's put it like this. Everyone's looking for a place. Right. And now we hear about the talk on the street is Timmy Rogers going to open a club. That's all I heard. I remember hearing that Timmy Burgess was looking and he found a space. They didn't say where it was. They didn't say who was involved, what was involved. All we know is just wait. <laughs> That's all we kept hearing. Just wait. How did that all come about? What was the story behind the shelter in New York City? Well, we've actually wanted a club since we were teens, you know. <laughs> 
since we were like running in and out of clubs, you know, we always dreamed about it, you know? Um, but we were so busy, you know, doing obviously other things um, that it wasn't until Timmy was solidly an executive. He did, by this time he was vice president at Motown. I got um, promoted, I was a vice president at Electra, I mean, at Atlantic. We were both doing really well at the time um, at the labels, at the companies, and we were still doing the radio, a um, little bit here and there, not as much, but we were traveling, DJing, etc. So we had the the ammunition finally to ammunition, meaning the finances finally, to look for a space and open a space. Um, but yeah, it was it took the garage closing for us to really say, okay, we got to do this, you know. And it never was for our own. It was really because we knew the family out there and the community um, wanted a place that reminded them of or that was similar to what we all came up with. So um, in 90, I think 1990, uh, myself, Timmy and Freddie Sannon sat down in his living room and we said, we're gonna do this and we'll pool ourselves and we'll get it together. And um, Charles Benanti from uh, Sound, what was the name of the studio again? Soundworks. Soundworks, right, right, Soundworks. I, I, I remember him, Charlie, I was like, that's it. Go ahead, sorry. And he partnered with us also and um, he got Madonna to um, give her stamp on it. And we knew that area was closing or that it was available, the club area, which was a famous landmark club in New York, in Tribeca. And, um, you know, we put it together. And that's that was the beginning of Shelter. I mean, obviously, what we wanted more than anything, it was a great space. And to be able to open up at the hours that we knew that our clientele wanted and our family wanted. and um, you know, it was me on Fridays and Tim on Saturdays. And then we felt it was important for the culture and the community that we have all the DJs we know that we came up with. Because um, none of us were able to play at these. We love the garage. We love the loft. We love all these clubs. But we were never able to play there or have the ability to um, play there. Fortunately, Larry played and supported our records um that we were putting out right before it closed um but yeah we we wanted to have a place for all our peers to come and play too and i think that sense of community not only with our audience or our, our family i don't like to call them audience but our family yeah. you know and the community of djs and people in the business and producers, et cetera, was very important to us because we didn't do it to make money. We were doing fine. We were executives at companies. We did it for the sake of the community. We need, and, a, place to, we need a place to do what we do. Yeah, that's all. Great. Look, everybody. Enjoy. Berlin starting the first night on a Friday night. <laughs> yeah, that was the first Friday night at, at Shelter. And, um, in the old yeah, we, had, we had the sound system there it was like uh it was it was the best it was great 
It was a great. David was, Soto. I remember he put that system in. David Soto. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. And we never imagined it would be 31 years now, you know, that the and, brand is still. And relevant. adored. Still and going. adored. And adored. And loved. And we didn't, we, we really didn't think so. We figured the love, the garage lasted for 10 years. So if we lasted for five years, we were, it was an accomplishment. Right? You know? You're thinking we'd be lucky we do five years, right? You said if we do yeah. five years. It's crazy. Merlin, how does that feel now? Now you got the hottest, you got the hottest club in New York in the underground scene. Well, you were competing with Sound Factory too at that time. Because mm -hmm. it was open. Because that was that space. Garage it closed. Sound Factory opens. And then right after, I was going to say Shelter opens, 91. So now you're the next guys on the, on the block taking back the crowd. Well, you know, I remember, Sound Factory, was, our crowds were slightly different, though. Sound Factory was definitely uh, a little... It's like 60 40 commercial where we were um 70 percent you know garage like um and we were a gay club at the end of the day you know it was it was mimicking what we grew up in like all the dance clubs we went to were gay clubs and even though we weren't gay we, we were accepted and so we were 100 percent supporting that and that and that clientele or that family that you know nurtured us and brought us up so you know shelter was an underground like a true underground dance club we didn't want to have anything commercial about us you know um but sound factory did really well too um and had a made a built a really great brand for themselves but they were never considered an underground club. no but 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 after garage closed, Junior did have a core of that crowd until yeah. the eyes opened up. As until I reduced, we opened up, right? Yeah, right. even Joey Yanos was working at Sound Factory, and he's right. you know, let's be real, head of security at Garage. So if yeah. you talk about family, you're going to see Noel and Joey Yanos at Sound Factory. It's kind of like inviting. It's like you, we know you, yo, you in Zanzibar. Or Tony Humphrey's like it's, yeah. it's family. It's just a different place. All right, we it's familiar until you guys opened up and then you extracted that core crowd. Yeah, because I remember the, the we even had Noel out. work at the door for us. Yeah, I remember that too when you brought Noel over, and then Ricky Willock later, of course. But mm -hmm. but in the early part of the shelter, it was it was it felt very garage-ish, you know, in the sense of the not garage, but it had pieces of core people that were part of the garage at shelter i mean you asked how did it feel back then i honestly it <laughs> i don't i don't realize what effect it had on so many people until now now i told you i just started back djing playing again like put myself full fully back in the genre and the okay. community and the culture. Marlon, let me and, say this. And, let me just say this then. From me as a train spotter, DJ producer myself, okay? When I heard Timmy play my records on that sound system, it felt like I was hanging out with Larry LeBan. That's how it felt for us. 
You know what I'm saying? Like, it was that feeling again. It was like, wow. See that crowd accept what you're doing with the hopes that you know this record's going to go now. There it is. You know? Well, I'll be honest with you. You know, Like I said, I don't, until now, I didn't realize how much it affected so many people. Back then when we were doing it, I mean, we were like 26, 27, 25, 26 years old. And we had so many different things going on that we were just grateful that we even had a crowd there. We were grateful that people even came, to be honest with you, and that they enjoyed themselves. So, you know, we always kept our, our ego intact. You know, Timmy and I always fought with our egos and keeping them intact. Cause you know, as we did all this stuff at a young age, we, our egos could have went like crazy. So we always kept each other in line, you know, with it's that. It's very true because Timmy is very quiet unless you know him. He's yeah, yeah. He won't yeah. talk. He don't talk. It's crazy. He don't talk. But that's his, that's just the person. People think it's him brushing people. No, that's right. just he's who going he like is. This he's just he you just know? don't talk. He's just not a big he's not a big socializer with others we know will happy to talk. He's rather be playing music and doing his thing. No, I get it. But you know, nobody understands. Yes. Merlin, exactly. nobody understands what that's like for you when you say that. Oh, we're just humble that we had a crowd. You had 800 revelers in that room screaming on a Friday and Saturday night. You know what I'm saying? It's a great feeling that you're actually signing a record and you're testing it that night on an acetate or a tape or reel to reel as an AR man, executive AR man, still playing on WBLS in New York. And you also have a club night now. And we lost Merlin Bob again. Is this not what I call legendary to have the man himself explain it step by step to all of you what this was like to be involved in a nightclub at the same time on WBLS and then running executive position during the daytime? Because he's doing corporate hours. He's doing nighttime hours. He's going to the studio to hear new productions and work in production companies. Because that's nothing an A&R person does. You go and sit down and listen to music as the guys are making it. So you're doing all that, flip-flopping, you know, DJing on the Friday, Wednesday at a meeting, a corporate meeting at Atlantic talking about budgets, Thursday going to hear maybe masses at work in the studio to hear the remix they're working on, this. You know, you're, you're running, you're, you're doing everything, you know, and balancing and all about balance and not get burnt out either. You didn't get burned out, huh? And and don't not to mention getting married and having three kids. Well, that too. Oh, I'm sorry, I forgot to and the dog and the house and doing all that stuff. So, so the '90s go on. You play, and shelter goes through ups and downs. Of course, you know, mm-hmm. lost spaces, move, and everything changes. When did you um, leave, or should I say, move to Electra? When was that? When was that transition happened? Well, what happened was I was at Atlanta B1, um, and we were doing really well. And I went to um, Sylvia Roan, who was the president of um, our division at that time. And I said to her, I was like, we have number one records at Atlantic, not number one R&B records, but pop records all the time. Uh, we sh- why are we just overseeing the 
urban division, we should be uh, executives overall at the company. So um, long story short, um, they gave us our own label, which was East West Records. And we started East West Records, um, which was distributed through Atlantic and had uh, great success there over three years, became a number one company again. And because of that, um, they gave us the ability to um, take over Electra Records. Okay. And of course, you're like a Formula One driver. You guys come in for number one, so you don't like number two and three. <laughs> it just seems like you just want number one this and number one that. And how many years were you stood at Electra till it till you ended there? Oh, Merlin will come back to us again. Must be the must be the the hot air with the Wi-Fi slowing down or the little squirrels that keep the wheels moving. But I think Mr. Merlin Bob is back. Merlin, you back with us? You there? Mr. Merlin? Lenny, you there? Yep, we're here. I was saying this, there's the squirrels outside. They're slowing down the yeah, wheel. The wheel's slowing down. Now. <laughs> what I was saying was, how many years did you last with Electra? So that was to, what, how long were you there? Electra was there until 2008, I think it is, or 2000, somewhere around there. Um, I was there for... Yeah, for um, almost 12 years or more. Overall, I spent 25 years as a music executive. Um, and since then, I've been consulting. So like any job you do for that long, and if you, um, you know, do it well enough, you can go on and start consulting. And um, that's why I've been able to come back over the years and you know, start uh, DJing again, start doing some ancillary businesses that we've had outside of the um, music, you know, I've owned restaurants, other nightclubs, like Greenhouse, you know, Greenhouse for us was like huge for, for years. Um, it was definitely not the shelter model, but we've owned other clubs, um, Juliet and Greenhouse, which is a big hip hop and EDM club during this time. Uh, probably number one, number one and number two in the country during that time. Um, so you know, I was able to do a lot of other ancillary things um, in in the entertainment business side, um, and still consult and work with the labels, um, and uh, spend more time with the family. <laughs> Merlin, why why come back to DJ? What was the what was the big? You know what? I really want to do this again. Because, you know, you get to a point in your life, you're doing the corporate, you're owning restaurants. Entre let's put it like this, entrepreneurship, consulting. You're very, at this stage, 25 years of corporate level mentality is drilled into you now. So you're not the same kid that went to Prelude Records. You're much more seasoned, professional, and has a lot under his belt now. Why come back at this stage? What was the driving force for that? Um, like I said, I was definitely convinced uh, from my peers um, from our anniversary party. Um, but more than anything, 
there's nothing I get more enjoyment out of than DJ. It's, it's like really something that even when I was an executive, I was still traveling to Japan whenever I could, traveling to London, still DJing. You know, I had to stop, uh, which I did for over like 15 plus years. I didn't play at all uh, because I was just too busy. I just couldn't do it. But um, but every time I'd go to a club, I still went out once in a while. I still went to the shelter parties and, you know, it, it was just kept calling me. You know, it's just like something that, you know, I, I loved from a teenager and it was the most enjoyable act that I can possibly do. Um, and it brings me a lot of fulfillment and joy, not just for the music aspect of it, but for the culture. And one of the reasons I'm doing it now also is not just, you know, I'm DJing now for fun, you know? Yeah, um, I, I kind of thought that, yeah. But more importantly, I wanna be a part of the history of how this genre moves forward and that the, the history of it is accounted for properly. And I wanna be a part of making sure that happens, right? I would love to see us have a, um, you know, hip hop museum, I mean, hip hop, um, house music museum um, here in New York or Chicago or wherever it is, as long as it's in the States would be great. Um, there's so many things that I like to see accomplished and so many people that have been instrumental in bringing this genre, which is worldwide now, which is one of the, if not the first or second in the top three, let's say, of genres worldwide is um, house music slash dance music. So, you know, it's important for me to be a part of how this history is is shaped and developed and, and, and grows over the years and how the culture, you know, uh, molds that. And I want to be a part of that in whatever way possible. Which you already is, are. What are you talking about being part of it? You, well, you, I, mean, I just want to be a part of it going forward. You know, it's it's important to me um, because I just started realizing I didn't really realize this until now, to be honest with you, that we really created. When I say we, I'm not just talking about us no, in I, yeah. about Chicago and Jersey and, and New York, Baltimore and and um, we started a genre of music that has you know, created a lot of number one joy for the world and people in it, people love the music. It's always been a music that's um, positive in every way. And it's also fulfilled so many dreams, this genre of music, you know, with producers, writers, artists, labels, you know, entrepreneurs, et cetera. Um, so I'd like to see it continued. And, and it's, you know, it's black and Latino music. You know, I want to make sure that that is understood. You know, it, it definitely is. It all came from us in our bedrooms. You know, <laughs> those guys and men and women in Chicago and men and women in New York um, came from our bedrooms. And you know, it just feels good to be a part of um, be a part of it now, because I never really. You know, all these years, I never really thought of how the effect was that we just did in our rooms would have on the world. Right. Know? I mean, again, Tony Humphrey's traveling the world, one of the first to travel the world with this music. Yeah. 
uh, you know, Timmy doing what he Timmy did, you doing what you did, all the other brothers and sisters that were a part of this whole thing. Frankie Knuckles, I mean, the list goes on. David Morales, and on such and such, on and on. You know, and I've had a couple people ask me before you came on the show, and they always mentioned to me about Shelter Records, Freddie Sanon. Um, what was the difference between the Shelter the Club opposed to the record? label were you also involved with that as well or that was separate no i i helped freddie set it up because freddie had a partner then because freddie was responsible for you know actually freddie came up with the name shelter he's the one because we were trying to figure out what are we going to name this place you know and um he's like listen i see all these shelter signs around the city all the time and you we always talk about we want this place to be their home so we should call it shelter. And we were both, well, all three of us were like, okay, sounds good to us, you know? So uh, yeah, Freddie was responsible for that, but um, Freddie is an entrepreneur too. So he wanted to start the label or the record label started of it. And I, you know, helped him in the beginning. I gave him Kerry Chandler. I gave him Roland Clark. I gave him all these artists that I had given production deals to at Atlantic. I gave him to um, start the the label, and with Carrie, I Carrie came to see me. He was a teenager, and I said, "Bro, we opened up a club." He's like, "I want to produce. I want to produce." I was like, "Okay, we open up a club. If you can come up with a theme song for us, you know, I'll give you a production deal." And he came up with that song, which was the Shelter song, and I gave it to Freddie as his first release. So that's Freddie has always been the hands-on with the label, and Timmy and I have always been the hands-on with the club. Gotcha, because people have been asking me for that for you know to that definition of you know who's which hat each person's playing in this game. So we're all family, you know. Oh yeah, no, of course. I mean, of course, everybody's family. Because even at that time, you had Kevin Hedge with you guys too back in the day, right? Was Kevin yes. Blaze? Mm -hmm. See, I had Kevin Hedge right in there from Jersey. I mean, it's like talk about family. It was, you know, uh, Timmy signed Blaze. You're signing, you know, the other guys. If it's, you're not putting it out on Atlantic, it's going to Freddie Sandler. Because I remember Freddie would say to me, yo, man, what you got? What you got? That was Freddie always looking for that new track because he wanted to put something out. You know, it's like, what do you, what do you got? What do you got for me? What do you got for me? You go come to the club. Freddie want always some tapes. You want, you know, I need something for the label. So, you know, I understand now what was going on. Well, you're behind the turntables. Freddie's trying to make his strike deals. He's playing AR man, hanging out, you know? And it's just it's a crazy way of doing business, but it worked back then. You know, guys, brothers and sisters, children of dance music. Could not get a better interview to understand how all this happened. And the best of it all, as this is all becoming part of the everyday landscape, these fellas are out doing prints and they're doing this and they're doing big A&R deals with th th these type of records, but yet their heart is still in the underground. It's crazy, craziness. Merlin, can I mean, when Merlin comes back, I want to ask him where his life is going to take him now because he's a consultant. He's got 
so many great things. And he looks great. I don't care what anybody says. Marilyn still looks like a kid. <laughs> it's incredible. They say it. It don't crack. And it's true. The man looks fabulous. Okay? I hope he's hearing me. Marilyn, I'm giving you so many compliments. I don't know if you heard not one of my compliments. I said, man, I said, the man still looks like a kid. Okay, you. I said, I said, also, while you're playing in the underground, you're also working with like Prince and Armin Edigan. You know what I mean? You're doing all this great stuff. And you don't even realize you're like, you're in your own goldfish, you know, pond, you know, microcosm. But yet, the rest of the world is looking at you guys like you're gods. Gods, dude, at that time. Gods. So, because you created this then, I know what you're hoping for now. Where do you see yourself going forward with business-wise? Are you still going to play in the A&R game? Are you still looking for those young acts? Or are you just doing the consulting and being entrepreneurial? Hope you heard my question. Let's see. Well, everyone, maybe we took all the energy out of Merlin's Wi-Fi. Maybe it's time we have to say good night. <laughs> and thank Mr. Merlin Bob his because he maybe he just shared too much information. And I know you don't want it to end, and everybody loves. You know, remember everybody, if if you, one thing you can always remember is if you want to do something great, if you want to do something great, okay, you got to do it from your heart. If you don't do it from your heart and you don't have the love for this thing, you can't never be a success. You have to do this from your heart. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. And Merlin Bob has proven that is, seems to be the first thing that you go with, your heart and your gut instinct, not your brain. Because it sounds like you do this from, from, the, from this centerplex right here. Um, I was asking you before your Wi-Fi and the squirrels died outside because of the heat. <laughs> the, the, are you going to be able to still A&R like you used to and keep doing what you do? Or are you just saying, I'm leaving that aside. I'm going to DJ. I'm going to consult. And I'm going to be entrepreneurial. Or are you still looking for that next big artist? Are you still doing that? No, I'm not, actually. I'm um, moving on. I'm, I'm an entrepreneur in other businesses now outside of music. Um, and I, that's why I have the ability to DJ now. My music will cons now consist of um, my music. I mean, me DJing. And um, I'm fine. Wait, 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 Merlin, I can't go banging you up as bro, please sign this, please. Well, you know, the bottom line is if I hear something that's amazing, I'm gonna, I know they, I still can consult, so I can still take it in, you know, but I'm not actively looking out for anything um, right now. Um, I'm more concerned with, you know, my son is an entertainment attorney. And um, so I help him out. And he, he, if I find something, I'll give it to him. Um, and, um, but outside of that, you know, I'm having so much fun and enjoying listening to the music that's out now, 
DJing now, um, you know, I don't DJ a lot. You know, I DJ when the opportunity calls. Like I'm DJing this Sunday, I think. Yeah, Sunday uh, for uh, Little Ray. At All the, right, Little Ray. Jamboree thing. And um, so I'm doing it, you know, for fun and, and doing, you know, for friends, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I'm really into it. Um, it. It's so funny. I felt like I was 16 again. Like I'm calling up. Louis, yo, man, what's those tracks you're supposed to send me? I'm calling up David Morales, like, yo, bro, send me that music. You know, I, I feel like I was back then. Like, I'm doing that now, but I'm enjoying it. Um, I'm enjoying it. So, um, but yeah, it's just about, you know, enjoying that. And, you know, I have a 16-year-old. I got to get through college now. I got my other three through. So... You know, there's a lot of other things going on that are important to me now outside of uh, just uh, the A&R aspects of things. But, you know, I'm always open to, and I always, my door was always open and people will tell you. It's um, true, everybody. It's A&R. true. It's Marshall told me that. Merlin always had time for our records and listen to everything. He always say yeah. that. My door is always open to hip hop artists and producers and those that wanted to, you know, R and B or dance or whatever me, whatever your genre was and whoever you were, as long as you were sincere about, you know, your your craft as a um, music person, my door was always open and whatever opportunities that I could give i would and i'm still that way now um with the like i said i want to do what's best for the culture of dance but i'm still you've already done it bro if you don't do nothing if you do nothing you've already cemented that so anything more to that is just like putting proponents on it because well you... that's why i say i want to be here for you know there's a lot of young djs have contacted me in the last six months or more and you know, I've given them advice. I've, you know, given them music. I've given them direction, you know, which I have no problem doing because, you know, um, I think it's very important, like I said, for this this culture and the genre to continue to, you know, pursue the kind of, um, and for them to pursue the kind of accomplishments that I was blessed to be able to have. I want to see the next generation of Merlin's out there, get those opportunities and do the same. Cause it, it definitely changed my life. It changed my family's life, my mother's life, my cousin's life, my aunt's life, <laughs> everyone that was around me. It changed a lot of people's lives. And right, remember, don't forget Tony and Merlin cousins, bro. Cousins for life, cousins, family, Timmy, all of them. They did it together, came up together, made history together, all made their own historical road paths of you know success in their own each one of you each one of you have your own major stories each one can write your own book on what you did what you contributed who you turned on it's it's never ending we can't thank you enough you know it's funny um i told you when i was 16 tony and i said to him that's what i want to do when he told me, explain to me what A&R person does. That's what I want to do. And he said to me, Negro, are you crazy? There's no black people doing that shit at major labels. Yeah, that ain't going to happen, bro. 
let's let's keep doing what we're doing. I was like, okay, but that sounds just like him. That sounds just like he would say that. <laughs> sounds just like him. Oh, you so, but but for years afterwards, he was like, every time I'd see him, you know, he'd be traveling everywhere, and we get together. He's like, yeah, I know, I know, I was wrong. I was, you were right. I was wrong. And he's like, I don't care. I'm just happy for you, and that's all that matters. That he was happy, you know. And I just want to say to you, thank God, Merlin, for all you guys, brothers. All of you guys did it. And you turn on thousands and thousands of DJs all around the world to go on and make all these records. And it's just, it's never ending. Lord knows how many people's careers, not just touching them, but just because you were on the radio or doing something that sparked someone to jump off of and used you as a muse. You know what I'm saying? They used you as a muse. Like we looked at David Todd and Larry Patterson, all those. Yeah, yeah. They look at you as like, yo, man, I want to be like Merlin Bob, bro. I want to be like Timmy Regisford. I want to be like Tony Humphreys. You know, uh, honestly, I, I didn't realize that, to be honest with you, until now. I'm telling like, you now, if you don't know, <laughs> you're going to hear it from me. This is what all I'm right. saying. There's many brothers that need to hear you say, what we did is what we did because we loved it, not because yeah. we were trying to do anything else. You weren't thinking about no cash. It was not about money back then. It was just like, nope. right? Strength to strength. We just wanted to, to do what we loved and do it well. Strength you know? to strength, gig to gig, gig to gig. Merlin, the top three all-time records for you that you played, top three, or oh, it's one, yeah. one or three, whatever. Your top three that you say, wow, every time. That's a hard one, man. One that comes to mind, the first one that comes to mind is um, Optimistic by by uh, Sounds of Blackness. All right. And um, wow, that's a hard one, bro. I know it's so many, right? It's so many. That's like when people ask me my favorite artist, I say, I really, I have no I don't even want to ask that question because you kind of answered it. You know, that's you said Chaka Khan, you were scobsmacked. There's nothing. Oh, yeah, well, yeah, that's like done. Okay, yeah. so that's out of the way. We all know that he loves Chaka <laughs> Khan, so take that out of the way. I know you, I live you. Done. Out of the way. Next. <laughs> but yeah, that optimistic is it always comes to mind for some reason. That song just like it when I would come to the club and I'd be like, oh man. I just I've been up for almost 24 hours and I got to play for 10 hours now, <laughs> and I'd put that on and I'd be good to go after that. Like it was just inspiring. If I remember correctly, my memory serves me right. Was it your night or Timmy's night that you had Sounds of Blackness there at the club? Um, Tim's. Right, that's what I thought. Wow, that's going back like 1991. Yeah, that was our first year. Right. I remember the, the advertisement. You were bringing Sounds of Blackness. And we we're like, whoa. Who the hell you has know, that kind of coins? I'm thinking in my mind. Like, who has got those kind of well, coins? You know, the thing is, um, Timmy's younger brother, Junior, registered. You know, Junior, he got into the business, too. But he moved to L.A. And, you know, he worked for uh, A&M. So his artist was... <laughs> Sounds of blackness. So you know how many years three, young is how many years young is Junior than you and Tim? Like three or four years. So he's coming up on the you guys watching yeah. you guys. 
Yeah, he was in a room with us too, all the time. So who else was in that room? Einstein? Who the hell else was in that room? It's like there's like who else yeah, was my in that brother, room? I have a younger brother. Um, he lives in Germany. He's um 15, 16 years. No, he's 20 years younger than me. And because um, my father got remarried and went okay. in Germany. And when he was a teenager, he came to stay with me all the time. And I, would, I had him interning at Atlantic. I had him doing a lot of stuff. Now he works in the music business in Germany. And he. Oh, we lost. Oh, Merlin. Wait. Come back, Merlin Bob. The Merlin the Wizard. Come back, please. <laughs> we want to get the last part. Diabolically, one of the best stories of the music industry, told by one of the best in the game. There's so many greats that we've had on this show. I mean, it's just such a pleasure to be able to have such an iconic guy like Merlin Bob. It tells us about Junior Registford, Timmy's younger brother over at AM doing that. And at the same time, we're gonna get to know about Merlin's younger brother from Germany. Merlin, what's your younger brother's name? Merlin? Hello? Merlin Bob? Okay, put him back. Merlin? Hello? Uh-oh. We wanted to say, Merlin, what is... <laughs> we want to get the name. Anyway, everyone, True Out Stories is back, full-powered. I got to get some new squirrels outside the house to help us with the Wi-Fi. Because <laughs> it's killing us. <laughs> Merlin, we, getting, we didn't get to hear your younger brother's name. Ruben. Ruben, Bob. And Ruben works where now? He's at, um, he works with a label out in, well, not a label. He works in a business out in um, Germany and, and um, he's also a DJ there. So um, yeah, whoever was hanging out around us, you know. Became DJs. Yeah. yeah. Became DJs just by the infectious air that was just around you guys. Damn. How come I wasn't in that room? <laughs> I should have been up in that room. Damn. Well, Merlin, you covered everything. I mean, as far as what we can get, we extracted a lot of information that we've never heard before. And the other thing is, is I know Tony's part Cuban. Is that means you're part Cuban as well? Colombian. Or no? Colombian, sorry. Mm -hmm. You're also Colombian as well, right? Part Colombian? No, no, no. That's on his, uh, his um, mother's side. Mother's side, okay. Mm -hmm. And his father was a band leader too. My family's from uh, my father's. I mean, my. I'm sorry. That's from his father's side. Sorry. Father. That's right. Um, my father's side is from Trinidad. Ah, West Indian blood. Okay. Timmy, Timmy's Trinidadian. Too. Yes, I know. West Indian blood. All right. I think you have covered. A monster amount of information in two hours. Yeah, and thank I you, bro. And yeah. I can't thank you enough. And thankfully, we got to hear it from you, explain it, and break it down. It's been absolutely one of my best 
to enjoy hearing this break broken all down like this. Incredible. Well, thank you for the platform to be able to do so. And like I said, this is, you know, I do it now. Normally I don't do these things too often. No, I know. I don't think there's any interviews with you. I looked around. There's not many. I mean, this is like a very, yo, I had to go through a process, everybody. I had to send him some others that he had to see first. He said, okay, I'm going to do it now. I was yeah, like, really? I, I had to do this on the other side, on the you know executive side all the time. So I'm kind of gave myself a break from it. But this is important to me. And the culture, like I said, is important. And the music is important. The people are important. And the future of it is important. So whatever I could do to inspire or to move the needle forward, um, I'm here, you know? Hold him to that, everyone. Follow Merlin, uh, follow Merlin Bob, please follow him and cheer him on as he makes this DJing career again, for the, <laughs> again to, to penetrate and kill it again. We need people like him to help break all the records that we all make. Cause you know, damn well, I'll be handing you my tracks. Of course. Bob, and you'll be like saying, yo, I can't work that, but that one I like, or this and, that, and that's the way it is. Cause if you loved everything we all did, you'd be lying to us. Of course. That's what we want. We want the realness. Of oh, course. where do we follow you? Everybody's asking the question. Where do we follow I'm you? I'm at, at DJ Merlin Bob. I mean, DJ Merlin Bob on, um, on uh, what do you call it? Uh, on Instagram. And, he, and Merlin Bob is at Club Shelter and also at Club Shelter in New York City. Right? Um, um, no, I just changed that. So oh, no. No, what? I just put this up. <laughs> so now it's now it's at DJ Merlin Bob. That's all. Double B at the end, everybody. Not B O B B O B B. Right. All right. Send him. Send him your love. Send him your messages. Follow him. I don't have to tell you how talented this man is. This man is badass. There ain't no better than this. This is where it comes from. So that all you think that can play music, check him out. And check out his old mixes on YouTube. They still hold weight, those old classic house mixes. He was breaking records before they were even out. So we got to realize, if you hear like a Moody or something, most likely he was playing it before it was out. Okay. So follow Merlin Bob and good night, everyone. And we'll see you all next week. Merlin Bob, do not leave us. And thank you again for tuning into True House Stories. Peace. <laughs>